Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. As you sit there in your loneliness, confused as you must be, I'm sure a dozen questions come to mind. If you're wondering why I left you After all you've done for me I guess you'll have to blame it on the time Oh, that's Willie Nelson. So, as some of you know, I spent 16 years at a CBS-owned radio station where I was kind of the house liberal on an otherwise very conservative radio station and so for years my show immediately preceded that of Rush Limbaugh and then for another set of years it followed that of Rush Limbaugh so I got a good chance to listen to well good might not be the right word I got an ample chance to listen to Rush Limbaugh and I began to see a lot of what the show was about and who it was directed at Um, it was directed at and you know it's significant that at least here on the East Coast it comes on the second half of the day sort of when people know how their day is really going to go. And it was really directed at people who were very frustrated and angry. It was directed at the salesman who hadn't sold his quota of widgets that day. He's struck in, stuck in traffic in a car he doesn't really like. His blood, blood pressure is up. Steam is coming out of his ears. And he's thinking, this is somebody's fault. This is someone's fault. Who is to blame for this? And really, if you listened to Rush carefully, he would tell you almost every day it was welfare queens and it was atheists and foreigners and it was the gays and it was whoever he was after that particular day. But it was very much a show about scapegoating because, in fact, people, particularly when they know their day is not going to come out well, and, and sometimes they know in a very extreme way that their day is not going to come out well, they wonder whose fault it is. So we're going to talk today about scapegoats, about the history of scapegoats, about why diseases get certain names. Uh, Trump's uh, attempt to make this a Chinese virus is not the first attempt of its kind. And then towards the end, we will talk to the noted poet, essayist, undertaker, Thomas Lynch, about the notion of the sin eater, an outmoded concept, but a person who could actually be induced to take on another person's sins for some remuneration. Uh, All right, so uh, we're going to get going here with Graham Wood, uh, staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State, and Lily Loofborough writes about gender, culture, and politics for Slate. And we're going to talk very specifically about what's going on right now. So, um, Lily Loofborough, I'd like to begin with you because... Uh, we seem to almost know when and how President Trump decided to start calling this the Chinese virus. We have sort of high-definition photographic evidence uh, of a certain emendation that was made to his speech. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, that it, it was interesting, right? Because I think one of the advantages of Trump's Twitter usage is that it gives us an archive <laughs> that we can easily um, refer to when we're trying to figure out how he's trying to spin things and why. And um, he was using the correct term for coronavirus for a very long time. And then at a certain point, suddenly it became the Chinese virus and it became the Chinese virus um, at a point when Trump's efforts to um, to downplay the virus and suggest it was going to go away like a miracle had thoroughly failed. Right. And and so but there was also you could see actually on a copy of his speech, right, that he had crossed out coronavirus, uh, that somebody had provided him a, with a speech or a set of remarks. This is in late March and, and substituted Chinese virus. That's right. Yeah. And Sharpie pen, it had been scribbled over. It was even in a plastic protector and the, <laughs> the, the, the Sharpie coronavirus was written over it. Yeah. So, um, so Graham Wood, um, let's say a little bit more about this. I mean, I initially was pretty shocked when he tried such a naked tactic. Uh, although I guess you could say that this is something that is kind of wired into us. As I was saying at the top of the show, people are kind of wired to look for someone or something to blame. Yeah, I, I don't think it's too abnormal that you'd find people looking to give a name to a virus. And of course, they're associating it with Wuhan, uh, with China. And uh, in in some sense, it, it feels pretty normal to, to say uh, Ebola, to say the, the name of a virus by uh, giving the, the the geographical location that it's associated with. On the other hand, there, there was, exactly as Lily said, a, a very peculiar insistence on using that name. Uh, you know, Trump, uh, he wrote it in his own hand. You could see that he he wanted to call it the Chinese virus. And I think as as journalists, what we have to keep in mind is, is that he is an absolute maestro, a, a, a world-class talent at figuring out how to change the subject from something that, that uh, is making him look bad. And that's why it was written in Sharpie, the Chinese virus. That's why he insisted in that peculiar way on, on using that term. It was because he was in a corner. He was looking terrible, not for the first time in his administration, but maybe in the, the, uh, in the worst way yet, he, he was looking incompetent. And uh, Trump knows that if he starts demonizing a group, scapegoating a group, and uh, using a name like the Chinese virus, then suddenly we'll be talking about that rather than about what the heck he was been, he was doing, his administration was doing while this virus was uh, spreading across the United States. Right, um, and and maybe this will work, but um, Lily, as Graham is suggesting, I mean, there are sort of two components. Uh, that lead President Trump to do this kind of thing. One of them is that at some level he knows or has been told that he didn't do a good job here, that his messaging was wrong, uh, that his actual physical ramp up of the of the country was bad leadership. Uh, but the other part of it is that people are bringing him polls. Uh, and I'm, there's one poll today by a nearly six to one margin. People ages 65 and older, this is a morning consult poll, uh, say it's important for the government to address the spread of coronavirus, more important than to focus on the economy. Um, a, a lot of the numbers that he typically gets uh, among groups like rural voters and blue collar voters are starting not to go his way. And it's not just the issue uh, of an incompetent or negligent uh, attitude towards 
towards this thing in February. It's his policies in April right now that people don't like either. They feel as though he's willing to endanger their their health to restart the economy. And I'm assuming that's part of the need to to do something like change the name of the virus or suddenly announce that you're uh, defunding the WHO or the most recent thing which, speaking of his Twitter history, seemed to happen after 10 p.m. at night on Monday night. He suddenly announced a new ban uh, on immigrants, and it seemed like Tuesday they, they, his staff tried to build a policy that would catch up to that statement somehow. But all of this, I assume, has to do with him feeling the hot breath of public discontent, Lily. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, Graham is right when he says it is a trap, right? And I think for for those of us trying to talk about this, but also importantly for Trump, as you're saying, like, I mean, you know, the facts are so simple. He said it was under control in February. He told Sean Hannity, we pretty much shut it down coming in from China. He said it would go away like a miracle. And now 40,000 Americans are dead. And 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment and the economy is in ruins. So scapegoating, which has always been, I think, an important component of Trump's rather limited but effective toolkit is all he has. You know, so um, I think that coexists with a fuzziness uh, in his approach to governance that is useful to parse. Like, you know, he, he said both that he takes no responsibility at all on the one hand and that he has full authority on the other. And, and that's been treated as a contradiction. But of course, you know, as you've said, for a showman, all that matters is how the show looks. And he wants nothing bad to be his fault and everything good to be to his credit. So among the scapegoats that you've mentioned, you know, there's also Barack Obama for not creating a vaccine for a disease that didn't exist when he was president. There's Joe Biden. He's blaming Joe Biden for something to do with China. He's blaming China, the World Health Organization governors, you know, for not having thousands of ventilators on the one hand and now for doing what they must to keep their state safe absent much in the way of federal leadership and now of course immigrants but I think that the interesting thing about that um, as as we try to think about how we could approach coverage of this differently is um, you know of course he didn't want to tell governors what to do specifically or dictate a national policy because it's better to let individual states flail and then blame them for whatever they do and of course there are not one but two coronavirus task forces right there's there's pence's and then there's kushner's sort of shadow task force trump does not want a unified or coordinated or effective response he wants chaos because somewhere in the chaos there will be a storyline he can seize that makes someone besides him look bad and i think that needs to inform our understanding of all of these scapegoating tactics. Right. And so, uh, and Lily, I just want to stay with you for one second on this. I mean, the other thing that he needs, I think, is a feedback loop from the mainstream press, uh, from the left. In other words, if he just says these things, if he says uh, Chinese virus or I'm cutting the funding to the WHO or, or whatever, and his base kind of nods and goes, well, that's, you know, that's kind of who we thought you were and that's why we voted for you. He kind of needs for this to be a really effective strategy for there to be some howling from people who who see what what's happening, but also are willing to call attention to it in a kind of adversarial way. That's right. And, you know, um, and it's hard to know what to do about that, because I think that one of the um, one of the things that Trump has really um, latched onto that is true is that the left is very fragmented, right? I mean, it's not a secret that that the Democratic Party is a very big umbrella with a lot of different factions and interests. And so 
um, the the symbolic attacks have a secondary side effect, right? Which is um, that the flip side, I, I, there is a, there is, I, I want, I want to hear Graham talk about this, but I think, you know, one prescription is to not react, right. To ignore the bait um, and to not take up this, um, this, this patently obvious line of distraction. And I understand that. Right? I mean, I think that makes sense from a certain point of view, but what Trump understands, and I think the trap that the left is in, is that that really fractures solidarity on the left, which is already an extremely short supply, right? Trump has been driving a thousand wedges into the left for as long as he's been president by doing something interesting, which is that he tends to attack marginalized communities one at a time. So it's Latinos one moment, it's Muslims another, it's transgender rights the next. And it costs him nothing to make those attacks. He pays no price politically, just as you've said, like his base really likes that and that's why they voted for him. But the demoralizing effect it has on the left is as follows. Like if you see that your specific community was attacked and you don't see a major response from the Democratic Party as a whole, when you've shown up to defend other marginalized communities that Trump has targeted, I think that really degrades morale and makes you feel politically homeless. Um, Graham, um, you may want to address that, but I'd also like you to just say a little bit about the fact that, you know, one of the things that Trump is shrewd enough to do in picking a scapegoat is to pick a scapegoat where there's, there's a little bit of meat clinging to the bones. Uh, if he said that this was all Tom Selleck's fault, uh, it really wouldn't make any sense. Uh, you've got to pick something where, yeah, you can actually point to something in the case of China and their candidness or lack thereof or the WHO. Maybe you could say a little bit more about that. Yeah, the, the whole reason these scapegoats work is because there is an argument for calling it the Chinese virus. It's not the name I would choose. Uh, if you, Even if you called it more specifically the Wuhan virus, you would be following a nomenclature or naming practice that has existed with many diseases that could be named. Similarly, if you say the problem is the WHO, then sure, I think we can easily run through failures of the WHO uh, and, and failures that, that uh, unlike the uh, claim that you know Barack Obama should have invented a vaccine for a disease that didn't exist, there were things the WHO could have done, should have done, uh, and was negligent in not having done that we can point to. So there are there are real conversations to have about the WHO and there are some conversations much less important to have about how you name a virus. The very fact that those conversations could exist is why they are so useful as distracting techniques. Uh, Trump, he will always choose something like that where there is a conversation to distract from a topic that is uh, simply impossible for him to defend himself on. The, the question that we saw from, I believe it was Wei Jiajiang of, of CBS News the other day, asking him, or Paula Reed as well of CBS News, asking him at press conferences, what were you doing in the month of February? You claim that you bought us time. What were you doing with that time? You could see the fear in his eyes because he was being asked a question that had no answer that was exculpatory for him, unlike these other ones where we can get in the weeds and, 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 and talk about what might be the merits of, of each side of, of, uh, of, of that debate. Now, what do we do on the solidarity question? I, I think it's important for us as, as journalists not to let ourselves off the hook. It's, it's true that there are, uh, there are immigrants who are suffering because of the decisions that have been made in the last few days. There are Asian Americans who have been attacked. 
And what we as journalists have to do is uh, try to keep in mind uh, the, the big picture. I mean, we, we don't represent the Democratic Party. We don't represent the left. But we do represent a, a uh, an, an obligation, a civic obligation uh, of dissent, of dissent against any government and of a, a sense that what we should be doing is uh, not being submissive to the conversation that that the government is asking us to have. In the court case of Donald Trump, it's very clear that that conversation that he's urging on us by giving us one controversy after another is the conversation that 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 distracts us, distracts our attention, keeps us from from having those prosecu- prosecutorial lines of 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 questioning toward him in his press conferences. Uh, he'll keep on doing that as he has for his entire uh, presidency and indeed his, his long career before that, too. So, Lily, if if President Trump or anybody picks scapegoats from certain sectors of society, minority sectors of society, it kind of plays into a peculiar part of American psychology, which doesn't dominate all of us. But there are people out there who, whether they articulate it or not, kind of believe in kind of a concept of allowable breakage, that there's sort of a sense that, oh, well, if you live, if you're a black person living in a city, you should expect that your life will be more precarious. That's just, and that's something that we, who do not fit that description, are willing to accept or subscribe to or something. And and I think picking on an Asian minority, there, there are an awful lot of people in this country who just think, well, that's kind of their problem, right? I mean, if people are yelling at them, even though they were born in, you know, Altadena, California, and now live in Manchester, Connecticut, and you have absolutely no possible connection to this virus, that's kind of their problem. I mean, when you have a scapegoat, it's helpful if that scapegoat exists at some cognitive distance from you, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's, that's the huge challenge is that when you have a coalition uh, which the the Democrats and the left do of um, of really you know disparate communities. I think that's exactly the challenge. There there um, there has to be some other uh, way of of channeling solidarity. Um, and I think that it's absolutely right that it is not the media's job. Well, I mean, I think in opinion it, it is <laughs> to advocate one point of view or the other, but. But in terms of, of media coverage, um, it's very tricky to not not play into one side or the other. And I think a lot of the media conversation has tended to um, pursue neutrality under the guise of, um, I don't even know how to say this, but but I think a lot of the, the language that we use for Trump is um, actually more uh, more blurry than clarifying. So, for example, the refusal to say that he lies, right, and and this sort of fetishization in, in many media organizations of, of of calling Trump's false statements false statements rather than lies. The line there is that it's impossible to read intentionality, right, and so all you can do is describe what he says and its truth and not its mental state. But I think that there is, um, I think that what Graham says is really right, which is that. The adversarial posture towards government is is necessary and healthy, and that what we've gotten frequently is actually kind of a strange inversion of that. So, for example, there's an AP headline from April seventh that says, "Trump blasts World Health Group and defends early virus steps," 
and the, you know, AP tends to be pretty, um, pretty thoughtful, I think, about the headlines that they choose. But to use the verb blasts seems to me to position Trump as both powerful and correct. Um, whereas, I don't know, maybe the way to report that is to say Trump tries to blame or Trump claims that X, right? And quoting him in full sentences, not in snippets that make him sound more coherent than he is. I don't know where, um, where the needle needs to land, <laughs> but I do know that it's not landing in the right place right now. And that, and that I think both the press and Trump are differently trapped. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we have to wrap up this segment, Graham, but I found the same thing. And I work for NPR, which or I work for a public radio station anyway, which also tends to aspires to a certain level headedness. Uh, but, you know, as the press critic Jay Rosen would say, this is a very asymmetrical situation. So being even handed kind of doesn't really make sense. Uh, it's not a good way to cover it. But I do find that if I say something like certainly at this point, President Trump is responsible for more people dying than would have otherwise died, A, because of his minimizing of the threat in the early stages, and B, because, as we've just said, for his squandering of the time logistically in February. And now we can probably throw in hydroxychloroquine, which uh, appears to be quite a dangerous thing to use on people. And he talked about it like it was aspirin. But if you say that, if you say, you know, he probably has gotten some people killed, he probably he almost definitely has gotten some people killed who would not have otherwise uh, died. People act like you're saying something that's, uh, I don't know, like way too radical a claim to make in this situation. I mean, Graham, just go ahead, react any way you want. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, when the president stands up and then uh, suggests that people go out and then take a prescription drug that, that has, there's no proof that it does anything that, that's positive for this condition, then how can you not say something that, that is pretty straightforward and damning about about his statement? But what I think we really need to keep in mind is that he has this immense power. There's this asymmetry that, that he enjoys in that Everything he says, by virtue of his being president of the United States, is something that we as journalists think of as required to be reported on, to, to be – it will – by definition, because it's uttered by the president, it is the dominant news story of the day. And that gives him a huge power over our and our readers and our listeners' attention spans that we shouldn't be giving him, that he's simply abusing. We should be noticing that, that he has that power without any uh, cost to himself of, of deciding what we talk about. What we should be doing is taking that power back and making sure that since he is such an abuser of that power that, that, that we take it up for ourselves and notice that what we really need to be to be calling – are, um, you know, the Trump and others to account for is their failures in the face of this pandemic uh, and and not whatever minor controversy along the way that, that he wants to sow to distract us from that. All right. We're going to have to stop there. Graham Wood writes for The Atlantic. Lily Lufborough writes for Slate. They are both terrific journalists. Uh, you should be reading all their stuff. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk about this whole business of naming diseases with an author who's been on our show before and perhaps will be again. Uh, she's the person who wrote the definitive book about the Spanish flu.
So in 2018, uh, we did a show called Are We Ready for the Next Pandemic? We're actually going to rerun that show. I, I initially balked at doing it, but we're going to rerun that show with a few cautionary inserts to it because, you know, it's remarkable how much of this was kind of knowable in advance. Uh, but one of the guests on that show was Laura Spinney, a science journalist and author who's been published in National Geographic, Nature, The Economist, among others. Her latest book is Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. We're going to specifically talk about uh, a piece she wrote uh, also before all this started uh, in the uh, magazine, online magazine, Eon, which is how we've decided to pronounce the name of the magazine now, even though it is spelled A-E-O-N. But Laura Spinney, first of all, welcome back to our show. Thank you. It's great to be here. And before we talk about who names diseases, I just have to ask you, I mean, you know, looking back at the book that you wrote, <laughs> I'm going to read just one little paragraph and apologies because my Brazilian Portuguese pronunciations are not that good. But on October 12th of 1918 in Rio de Janeiro, the satirical magazine Careta, uh, which means grimace, expressed a fear that the authorities would exaggerate the danger imposed by this killer of old people, Limpa Velhos, uh, to uh, justify imposing, quote, a scientific dictatorship and violating people's civil rights. The press portrayed the director of public health, Carlos Seidi, uh, as a dithering bureaucrat and politicians rubbished his talk of microbes traveling through the air, insisting that dust from Dakar could come this far. So I don't know. <laughs> this must, it must be weird to be you right now. And I'll just let you react to that any way you want to. <laughs> there, there is a certain tragic irony to it. Yeah. I mean, I wrote my book because it seemed to me that everybody had forgotten this huge disaster of the early 20th century. And that there was a hole there that needed to be filled. So I, I wrote my book and I never imagined that two years later, all I would be talking about would be the Spanish flu. Right. And they're just the resonances. I mean, just listen to that whole thing, that whole, you know, yeah. question of whether to accept science. Is science trying to impose a dictatorship? Should we rebel against this? And you look at the protests that we've started to have uh, around the U.S. right now, and it just it just seems like a, a slight update. But but let's focus in also on this question of who names diseases. And this is, for the most part, an, an ugly history. Uh, and perhaps you should begin by explaining explaining the term the Naples soldier. Yeah, okay. So um, everybody in the world, apart from the Spanish, called the 1918 flu pandemic the Spanish flu. And it was one of the greatest historical injustices ever to have been committed because, it, you know, it seems to us looking back with only a little knowledge that 50 million deaths are at the doorstep of the Spanish when nothing could be further from the truth. Um, there are many unanswered questions about the 1918 pandemic. Well, one of the things we know for sure is that it did not start in Spain. Um, the uh, reason it, it took on that name is that Spain was neutral in the war, which, um, of course, the First World War, which overlapped with the Spanish flu, um, and it didn't censor its press. So when the first cases broke out there in um, the spring of 1918, they were reported in the newspapers. Um, there was no censorship, whereas, whereas in countries including yours and mine, Britain, um, France, where I live, and uh, other countries as well, where the flu had been before it was in Spain, they kept that out of the newspapers because they were censoring their press because they were at war and supposedly didn't want to lower the morale of the population. So it seemed to everybody reading their newspapers in all parts of the world, really, 
that it was rippling out from Madrid. And that suited the warring nations very well. So they, they kind of, you know, helped to point the finger at Spain. And unfortunately, that name stuck. But the Naples soldier is what the Spanish called it, because it came from the name of an aria that was being sung in a very popular opera in the theatres of Madrid at the time that the uh, illness erupted. And uh, it seemed to people that this disease was as catchy as the tune. So they gave it that name. Obviously, they weren't going to call it the Spanish flu. Uh, it didn't seem to them that uh, they they were responsible. Right. Now, if you can't get away with blaming another group of human beings, another option would be to blame somebody like pigs. Uh, and we, we saw this happen in 2009. There was a flu pandemic. Uh, and uh, I was doing quite a bit of traveling at that time. And everybody was talking uh, about the swine flu. Although I guess pigs had essentially nothing to do with this. Well, and, and, and look at that. So, um, you know, the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, has made huge efforts since 2009 to rename that pandemic retrospectively. And it, it sort of worked, but not quite. People still think of it a little bit as the swine flu. I mean, the facts are that in 1918, we had a strain of H1N1 influenza A, which caused a lot of death on the planet amongst humans. We infected pigs with that strain of flu. It evolved in pigs for the best part of a century, and then they gave it back to us in 2009. So pigs, it was a spillover event that caused the pandemic in 2009 from pigs to humans. But by the time we noticed it, it was already highly transmissible between people. So it was already very much a human disease. There's no point in calling it swine flu, except sort of to understand how it, how, you know, where it came from initially. But it had bad consequences giving it that name because, for example, in Egypt, the, Egypt, the Egyptian government ordered the slaughter of the country's um, pig herds, most of which were owned by the Coptic Christian minority. And so their economy was basically dashed to nothing in a moment. And, and of course, it didn't do any good because it didn't stop transmission of the disease between people, which was the real problem at that point. Right. And Just it, one example yeah. of how names can be unhelpful. Sorry. Right. So 300,000 uh, pigs who could would have, could have been otherwise perhaps deliciously cooked or something were uh, <laughs> sacrificed to that idea. Um, as far as we know, that H1N1 strain was first detected in Mexico, but may have actually originated in the United States or, or North America. Um, but it seems as though, you know, they say that the victors write the history. It also seems like the dominant powers uh, try to assign, assign the names that are pretty good at deflecting uh, any any nomenclature away from themselves. It's so fascinating, you know, because actually it took a, it took a while for the name the Spanish flu to to dominate. At the beginning, there were loads of names going around um, in in the midst, in the thick of the pandemic, if you like, because everybody had their little local pandemic uh, epidemics, and it took them a while to realize that this was one disease causing havoc worldwide, then sort of lots of different diseases in their local places. Um, and so there were lots of different names, all of them with an element, well, most of them with an element of xenophobia in them. Um, I mean, the, the, the in Senegal, it was called the Brazilian flu. In Brazil, the German flu. The Danes, I love this one, the Danes thought it came from the South. Um, and, uh, and then basically what happened was that the countries that were victorious in the war managed to impose the name that they wanted, which was the Spanish flu, this very huge historical injustice. And that's the one that's come down to us you know, in posterity and because names are sticky like that. Um, but what I think is fascinating is that first period where there's this kind of jostling for the mm -hmm. names. And I think you see that today. Uh, your president wants us to call it the Chinese virus. Um, there are lots of reasons for not doing that, scientific reasons. 
Um, and uh, for the moment, at least, it looks like the WHO is prevailing with its insistence on calling it COVID-19. And I think that, that they will probably win. And that's a good thing. Right. The only Americans who've ever uh, not escaped from this are the people who live about 43 miles south of where I'm sitting right now, the people of Lyme, Connecticut. And everybody knows people who live in Lyme are very strange. They keep deer and mice in their houses, and you know it's, it is all their fault, uh, that particular disease. Uh, but in fact, the disease exists in other places, North America, Europe, Asia. It doesn't really have anything to do with Lyme. Except that's it was... yeah. Go ahead, say that again, Laura. So, so the, one of the problems is that it is really necessary to give a disease a name at the beginning because you need to call it by something. You need to be able to discuss it and to, you know, talk about how to solve it and solutions and so on. So it's really important that a disease has a name. But the problem is that at the beginning, we don't know enough about it to be able to say where it came from or so on. So often the early name is unhelpful. So here's the huge paradox at the heart of what we're talking about. And, and Lyme disease is a great example. Zika is another. It was named for a forest in Uganda where it was first identified, but it's spread, as you know, way beyond that. It's in the Americas now. Ebola the same. It was named for a river in um, uh, Central Africa. And then, of course, in 2014, it caused a huge outbreak in West Africa. Um, so in some ways, names are... They don't keep track of the disease and how it evolves, and that's and they become unhelpful, although they're necessary in the beginning. And the other problem is that names can be useful while they're in, they, they they risk always being stigmatizing, but they can be useful. If you talk about something like monkeypox, that contains information about a possible animal reservoir that you might want to avoid, that you might want to change your uh, practices uh, uh, in order to not go near the reservoir of that disease. Um, and that's helpful information as long as it's accurate. I think this this huge paradox is probably to try to separate accountability or information about where the disease came from, from the name itself. You have to have ways of finding the source, you know, solving the problem if you can, of how that became a human disease without putting it in the name. Right. It, it also would seem to make sense that the WHO or something like that should be in control of this process. But I guess the process is so visceral, so political, uh, yeah. so emotional that it's probably impossible for either the scientific community uh, or the WHO to come up with a sterilized label that people will actually use. Right. So the WHO, as, as you know, came up with these guidelines in 2015 for naming diseases. And the thrust of the guidelines was don't stigmatize anybody. Don't name your disease after a population, a subpopulation, a culture, a group, an animal, a, you know, food. And don't put scary words in it like uh, fatal <laughs> or unknown. Um, you know, be completely bland and factual and uh, you know, name the virus according to the nomenclature of virology. And if there's a need to distinguish similar viruses, give them numbers. So, you know, there we are. We end up with a rather bland name like COVID-19, um, which uh, actually I think there are ways of making it memorable without being stigmatizing. I think it's sort of memorable, COVID-19, but it is a bit bland. It doesn't, it doesn't have monkey in it or, you know, um, uh, but that's a good thing in the long run. I think we need to get used to that. 
All right, so we've been talking to Laura Spinney. You're going to hear her on the show again next week because we are going to re-air this 2018 show we did about whether we are ready for the next pandemic. It turns out we have the answer to that question now, too, unfortunately. Laura Spinney is a science journalist and author who has been published in the National Geographic Nature, The Economist, among others. Her latest book is Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. Uh, Coming up, the writer-poet Thomas Lynch, who is a big deal in my house. Everybody's very excited, including Declan the dog, who's come in here into the studio to listen to Thomas Lynch. We're going to talk about a term you've probably never heard, uh, the notion of a sin eater or substitutional atonement. Can you get somebody else to essentially take on the weight of your sins? I'm looking at you right now, Mike Pence. We'll be back. (laughs) My father, who was a playwright, um, used to say that if you're going to be a writer, he worked at United Aircraft in addition to this. If you're going to be a writer, it's a good idea to also have a steady job. Uh, And maybe the steadiest job of all is the one that Thomas Lynch uh, had since 1974 as a funeral director. But we know him so much better, particularly around this house, as the author of five collections of poems and four books of essays. Uh, What have we got here? Uh, Declan has been reading earlier today. The Undertaking, Life Studies from the Dismal Trade, Bodies in Motion and at Rest on Metaphor and Mortality. Here's another one here. Uh, apparitions and late fictions, a novella and stories. But we're really here. We should say his latest book of essays uh, is The Deposition, New and Selected Essays on Being and Ceasing to Be. Uh, But we specifically want to talk about um, the Sin Eater, a breviary. So Thomas Lynch joins us now. Uh, I should say it'll be somewhat inconvenient to some of the listeners. We are going to conduct this interview entirely in Latin. Um, but try to try to follow along anyway as best you can. Thomas Lynch, so exciting to have you here. You'll get over the excitement, Colin. But thank you very much for your interest in that nice so, introduction. So, well, let's talk a little bit about this idea. And this idea came to you a little bit through the mists of sleep, while an adaptation of a Robert Louis Stevenson story was on television, yeah. and your children were watching it, and suddenly you encountered this thing, this half-dreamt idea. Tell us more. Well, the, the, what I encountered on the TV was this figure of, um, a rare figure out of, uh, apparently, uh, Scottish mythology of, of a sin eater. And the, the episode included this ragged-looking uh, uh, man standing over a corpse laid out on a board in front of a tower house in what looked like Dundee or someplace, uh, Aberdeen or something like that. And um, so I, I, uh, and I immediately knew who it was because I had studied in mortuary school a text called The History of American Funeral Directing, which quoted a, a British scholar by the name of uh, Bertram Puckle, <laughs> to wit, uh, there was a functionary at funerals whose job it was to take unto himself unto himself the sins of the departed in the form of a loaf of bread and a bowl of beer for which he would charge sixpence. So this sin-eater, so-called, 
um, was what I was looking at coming out of a nap in my wingback chair and immediately began writing poems about such a figure because I identified with, um, uh, with this figure because the huge ambivalence in which he was held because people, you know, sort of were glad to see him coming because he got rid of the punishment of sins. Uh, but they were glad to see him going because it always meant that they'd have to feed him and pay him, and, and it also meant that someone had died. So in that way, he was very much like the small-town funeral director that I uh, have been for 50 years, and um, and I've come to understand the ambivalence with which my townspeople hold our firm and our uh, and our staff and myself, so... Yeah, you know, it's been a rich field for me. Neither of us is technically a licensed theologian, but it's kind of interesting to think of this idea of the sin eater. It's it's as if, you know, God supposedly made uh, Christ in human form, partly so that he could atone for our sins, first of all, substitutionary atonement, the term that you use, uh, and also so that we could see God in human form. But it's almost as though with the sin eater, it's kind of like, well, yeah, but Jesus is just, you know, he's probably, first of all, over overwhelmed with clients uh, and kind of hard to wrap your mind around at this point. So it's like the sin eater is the even more human form that undertakes this kind of atonement and for a much more detectable transaction. I'm very glad you, you noticed the connection between the so-called Lamb of God, who was uh, uh, precisely sent to atone for our sins as a as a as a peace offering between uh, fallen mankind and um, God the Father. So Christianity is based on substitutionary atonement, and it morphed. It's I mean when when the Church simply meant the Church, the Catholic Church of Rome, um, uh, when they went astray is when they tried to shortcut this process by selling indulgences. And at least one good priest by the name of Luther said, that seems a little corrupt, and, and, and hence the Reformation. But the notion that we can somehow make a sacrifice that makes up for the fact that we've done something wrong, um, the scapegoating of something or someone or, or some conduct of ours can make it up, we can get out of purgatory. We can get out of the punishment due to our sins to purge ourselves of the blemishes of our imperfections. That's deeply Christian. And I think um, many people at some point kind of squint their eyes and, and begin to doubt, you know, <laughs> because if, if God is truly a parent, any parent knows we must, in the end, forgive everything, and uh, for no other reason than love. Right. But humankind is also an enormous bureaucratic institution. Um, and, mm -hmm. and and so, I don't know, as I look at the Sin Eater, and you're writing about the Sin Eater, I'm, I'm torn. Um, I'm torn between the notion, it feels a little bit like um, it feels a little bit like the idea of sending the village idiot in your place during the American Civil War, or the fact that people 
uh, who were of certain of certain socioeconomic status could, for the most part, and I know this touches quite a bit on your own experience, and, uh, avoid the Vietnam War, or even the sense right. now that we are all sending all kinds of other people rushing into danger against COVID nineteen. While I sit here and order stuff on Amazon, it feels a little unwholesome. On the other hand, it feels a little wholesome in the sense that rather than scapegoating, we find somebody who, in exchange for a sixpence or whatever, is kind of willing to do all this stuff. Maybe I can't decide whether it's a toxic thing or a goodly thing. You are sharing um, Argyle, the name of my sin eater. He was named after the only thing Scottish I knew, which was Argyle (laughs) socks. And uh, and because it sounded like our guilt, Argyle. Mm -hmm. And and so I thought it was a useful name uh, for my character. But his... um, ambivalence about what he does. He's hungry. So if someone's willing to feed him, if he stands near a corpse when he does it, he'll take that. Food is food. And uh, he, he, he needs money. And if, and if someone will pay him to take on the sins of the other, uh, he'll, he'll claim to do so. He begins to wonder as time goes on, um, what happens to all the sin he's consumed? You know, uh, he's eaten such uh, a feast of perdition uh, that he himself feels as if his soul must be sold so dark it would be impossible to uh, to cleanse himself. So, uh, some somewhere in the conduct of these poems, he uh, he proclaims sort of a general absolution, as we do, and and proclaim everybody free of sin, everybody okay. But the fact that people have, for a long time, bought their way out of, um, you know, what was due to them is not news. That's happening as we speak, and it has happened all through history. You know, uh, this will probably be the last question because we're running out of time. But it, you know, reading the uh, the essay in the Literary Hub, I was thinking we do need other humans somehow to help us grapple with these questions. I. There are two uh, women who are dead who I talk to all the time. One of them was a Christian pastor. The other one was a Wiccan priestess. So you can see I've sort of covered the waterfront here. But also they were the people mm-hmm. who who I, who I could talk to when they were alive about these kinds of things. And now that they're gone, yeah, when I have issues of guilt and sin and hope and and just needing help, it seems a lot to talk to God and it seems a lot to talk to Jesus. The notion of someone a little bit more recognizable, someone that, you know, you've you've seen and known in life uh, seems to be part of the equation you're talking about. I, I, I suppose the life of my faith, Colin, like the life of yours, is sort of um, provisional. Some days it seems to me obvious that a loving God is in charge. Other days it seems that we are entirely alone. And um, that doubt, um, I'm named for a famous doubter, and um, and I'm also named for a dead priest. In either case, we have you in in your faith life and me in mine, um, a cloud of witnesses. But they are they are not um, they are neither Mother Nature nor Father God. Our cloud of witnesses include the aunts and uncles and cousins and dear friends and mothers and fathers and people we met. 
the best gift we ever got from whoever God is these days is one another. And this is perhaps why Jesus made the one commandment of the, uh, of the New Testament, one of the two, is love one another. Just love one another. We are miracle enough. We are salvation enough. We are healing enough. And um, I always think of them, those fellows that carried the, the paralytic uh, to Capernaum to to get healed by Jesus, and because the house was so full, they had to tear the roof apart and carry him up and lower him down. That lowering on ropes of a man on a pallet seems to me like lowering a coffin into the ground. We get to the we get to the the foot of our redemption and our salvation and our forgiveness. And um, but for good measure, we are told to arise and walk. So. Whichever miracle we want, the real miracle is the friends that got us there. Perfectly put. You've landed the plane, uh, Thomas Lynch. Uh, so great to talk to you. Uh, I should say my dog Declan has enjoyed this entire thing. A person less knowing would have thought he was sleeping on the floor here, but he's been listening very attentively <laughs> to both of us. My dog Carl sends his best. <laughs> All right. Thomas Lynch, the author of so many, so much wonderful stuff, but relevantly today, the sin eater of breviary. And he has a new book of essays, The Deposition, uh, new and selected essays on being and ceasing to be. Thank you, Cat Pastor, for running the board and keeping us safe uh, because uh, you're in there uh, making it possible for us to work from home. Thank you, senior producer Betsy Kaplan, for putting together this wonderful show, getting these terrific guests. And we will be back with more as the week goes along.